Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? Last Thursday, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum began its annual Hall of Fame Classic Weekend with a screening of a new documentary on Yogi Berra. It Ain't Over goes beyond the story of the Hall of Famer and three-time MVP who won more World Series as a player, 10, than anyone else. We learn about the D-Day veteran, loving husband and father, and his funny yet philosophical yogiisms. The film's executive producer, his granddaughter, Lindsay Berra, says that personality of his actually served to take away from his legacy as a baseball player. Like the film itself, this trailer begins with a Mount Rushmore of living baseball legends, narrated by Lindsay Berra. You'll hear Hall of Fame broadcasters Bob Costas and Vin Scully, Yankee legends Willie Randolph, Derek Jeter, Ron Guidry, and Don Mattingly. Hall of Fame writers Claire Smith and Roger Angel, authors Dave Kaplan and Marty Appel, and actor Billy Crystal. The 2015 All-Star Game features the four greatest living baseball players. Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays, who are all absolutely amazing players in their own right. But I'm in the room sitting next to my grandfather, Yogi Berra, and I'm thinking, wait a second. He's got more MVPs than any of these guys. He's won more World Series rings than all four of them combined. And I look at him and I said, are you dead? And he said, not yet. One of the greatest World Series resumes of any player ever. Hey, he got it done. He was a winner because he had all the rings to prove it. He's the figure that was larger than life. There's no Jackie without the acceptance of Yogi Berra. When Yogi comes to the team, they say he doesn't look like a Yankee. He wasn't six foot three with blonde hair. Everything funny. He was a character. He was made fun of in the New York press. But that sort of became who Yogi Berra was, this funny little guy. That's right, Yogi Berra. I don't think Yogi liked it too much. The Yogiisms. Let's talk about the Yogiisms. He said, nobody goes to that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded. When you get to a fork in the road, take it. What? And it ain't over till it's over. It makes a lot of sense. That personality of his actually served to take away from his legacy as a baseball player. It always felt wrong. It's not fair to him. He's just a gentle, kind soul. He was loved by so many people in this country. Total respect for Yogi. A guy that everybody loved, not because he was cute and funny, it's because he was good and he was real. He was the most overlooked superstar in the history of baseball. Following the film, Bruce Markizin, the Hall's digital and outreach learning manager, hosted a Q&A with Lindsay Berra, film producers Peter and Mike Soboloff, and Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Barra and Peter Soboloff explain how Morgan Neville's 2018 documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, set the stage for the film. It was all Peter. Um, in the summer of 2018, he went to see the Mr. Rogers documentary, and the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center golf outing was like the next day, and he saw my dad and uncles and said, how come there's no Mr. Rogers documentary but about your father? And they said, 
we don't know, no one's ever made one. And he <laughs> said, well, can I? And he had previously produced a movie um, with our director, Sean Mullen, and Sean played rugby at West Point, so he was an athlete, a military veteran, and just kind of seemed to fit. My dad and uncles loved him right away. Um, and then I got involved a few months later, was introduced to Sean, and just started peppering him with um, emails and texts and phone calls, like, you gotta get Vince Scully, you gotta get Audrey Graziola, you gotta get Tony Kubek, you gotta get Bobby Richardson, these are not young people, we have to hurry. <laughs> You're a Hollywood person, you don't know them, you need my help. So that was kind of how I got involved. And I was pushed to see the Mr. Rogers thing, I didn't want to go. And uh, I'm so glad now that I, that I went. Farah describes the process of making the movie, and she and Peter Soboloff discuss the reaction to the film, including an unlikely response from a New England enclave of Yankee enemies. We started in, in June of 2018. The first reviews came out of the Tribeca Film Festival last year, so it was four years in the making. Um, and we had that little pandemic thing in the middle. I don't know if you guys remember that. <laughs> And uh, we had to stop shooting for like 14 months. So it was just like a really long process. And I was just really excited to get it in front of folks and just have people start <coughs> seeing it. So I was really thrilled after Tribeca. And then I actually just told the story earlier today, right after Tribeca, we had six screenings. And the next film festival was Nantucket. And our director, Sean, said, why don't you come up with me to Nantucket? And I was like, Sean? It's an island of Red Sox fans. <laughs> but so we go, and I, I'm thinking they're going to like throw fruit at us or something. And we ended up getting one of our best reviews out of Nantucket. And then I was like, all right, if we can win over Red Sox Nation, then we've got uh, I, I would jump in on that and say, when you're watching these movies, you're watching it on your own computer. So you don't know, you don't know when people are going to laugh or if they're going to laugh. So in Tribeca, we had a thousand person theater sold mm -hmm. out. And I was. And I knew everybody would cry. Like the crying thing was obvious. And I cry every time I see it. But the laughing, and then there was cheering, uh, and that was overwhelming. And that's when I knew. That's when I thought, Oh wow, this is this is really something. Mike Sobolov states the film's thesis and explains how Lindsay Barra became the film's focal point. The pressure was on from the the get go because of Yogi Satcher and how beloved he is. But we also, from the very beginning, felt. You know, a, why isn't there a movie already about him? He's so beloved, and he's so great, and, you know, why do we always talk about the yogisms and, and the, the sort of funny nature, and not about the ball playing? So we, from the jump, what was really important to us was to sort of set the record straight, to make sure that, you know, we, we talk about him as a person and, and show you all that stuff, but to really also just point out that, look, this guy's the best. So, so I mean, we were determined from the jump. Uh, so pressure aside, we just, we, we we felt so strongly that we're doing the right thing. Uh, that our North Star was we want to course correct the historical record for Yogi. Uh, that, and that was such a compelling thing that I don't think we were sweating the pressure. I think we were just certain we got to get this done. Uh, and then, you know, Lindsay came aboard and, and changed the nature of the whole thing, you know, when she really opened all these doors for us and, and sort of became the focal point of the story or, or, or sort of grounded in this humanity. Um, and none of it was ever a question. It was just, we were so determined from the, from the beginning. Mike Soboloff continues explaining the ethos of a documentary filmmaker and how it informed the discussion of Barra's 1999 return to Yankee Stadium after his 1985 firing by George Steinbrenner. In between, a yogi-led intervention with son Dale Barra gave Dale an ultimatum that's led to three decades of sobriety. When you're making a documentary, I, I would say that it's your responsibility to turn every stone over, look at 
pleasant and unpleasant things. And you know, we had hoped from the get-go just to be an inspiring uh, story about a great man, but we had to ask tough questions. Is the Steinbrenner feud a little unpleasant, but you know, not that big a deal worked out, deal thing. And just otherwise, before I address that, you know, we were asking the question too, who's got something bad to say about this guy? We need to look at every possibility, and I'll say that nobody has, and we spoke to hundreds of people, nobody has a bad thing to say about Yogi Berra. It's unbelievable. Um, so, you know, this is something that happens. It's, I would argue, our responsibility to talk about it. Um, but the, the beautiful thing here, and the you know, bit of inspiration is that Dale's very willing to talk about it too. You know, he's, he doesn't, I don't want to speak for him, but. I think he recognizes the, the inspiring power of you know the 27 years at the time of that book signing, 30 years now, uh, that he's been sober. And, and I think from the jump, we, you know, we always said, with this movie, we want to make you laugh, we want to teach you something, and probably make you cry, um, which I hope we did. But uh, that makes me cry every time. You know, I've seen this movie a thousand times. But uh, it, you know, it's it's a matter of facts, a matter of historical record. Uh, and I think it would have been wrong to not get into it. And fortunately, Dale's very happy to talk about it, and hopefully this will help people too in the future. Lindsay cites the intervention as one of many examples in which the film humanizes her grandfather and makes his story accessible to viewers outside the sphere of baseball fans. Our director, Sean Mullen, was also very adamant about not making this a baseball movie. And I think including all the parts of Grandpa's story as a first-generation Italian immigrant, there's so many of us that are the sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters of immigrants or immigrants ourselves, then he's a veteran, so many veterans out there, people who know veterans, people who just respect veterans. The Dale stuff just further humanizes Grandpa. We all know people who have dealt with addiction, and even if you don't, there's nobody in this room who can't identify with the lengths a parent is willing to go to to protect their children. So in, in an effort, yes, it's, it's grandpa's truth, That's, that was part of his life, it's what happened, but it, it does also just make him so much more relatable to people, and I think that over the years, that relatability is what so endeared him to folks, so why stop? now at this point, you know. Through stories told by Dale, Lindsay shares two more examples of how Yogi welcomed the first two black players in MLB history into the game and his neighborhood. Then, Peter and Lindsay discuss how Yogi helped his successor, Elston Howard, on and off the field. So Grandpa met Jackie, so let's also not forget that anybody who served in World War II as an American soldier served in an integrated armed forces, right? So he was very used to being alongside African Americans. He came home and he played in 1946 with the Newark Bears, who's a Yankees minor league team, and Jackie played for the Montreal Royals that season, and they faced each other in the playoffs, and Dale tells the story all the time because Jackie told it to him. The first time Jackie stepped to the plate in this minor league game, the first time they encountered each other, Grandpa came up out of his crouch and said, welcome to organized baseball and thank you for your service to the country. So they met in that sit setting, so when, and then they played seven games against each other and actually the Royals beat the Bears. Um, so when Grandpa, when Jackie broke into the big leagues the next year, uh, Grandpa already knew him and would make a point to go over and say, oh hey Jack, how you doing? And I, I think that he was, I, I don't think that he was making a statement by doing it. I think he was a, a good and kind person who the right thing came innately to. He had heard the Dago walk things. He didn't like being on the ends of slurs. He didn't want anyone else to, to be and didn't want them to feel unwelcome. 
and it was it was just how he was. You know, they I say I tell this all the time too. Dale and, and Larry Doby Jr., who's in the film, are the same age. My grandparents moved to Montclair in New Jersey in 1958. The Dobies had moved there from Patterson. This is seven years before the height of the civil rights movement in this country. And my Uncle Dale grew up in Helen Doby's kitchen. My grandmother had no problem sending her kids to a black family's home. Dale played Little League on an all-black team in Montclair because it was the best players. My grandparents just didn't, they didn't think like that. They were progressive and ahead of their time without attempting to be progressive or ahead of the time just because they were good people. And it, you know, I always say, I don't think, this is a very long answer, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think um, the civil rights movement gets where it gets in this country without happening in baseball first, and it doesn't happen in baseball without players like my grandpa and all the others who, as Claire Smith said, didn't say no. Willie Randolph told me, it told us a story. Uh, so Willie Randolph comes out of the projects in Brooklyn, and he sees this relationship between Elson Howard and Yogi Berra. They go to breakfast together, they go to movies together, you know, Elson Howard took Yogi Berra's position, and they looked out for him. And, and Willie said he had never seen an African-American man in Elston Howard's position, and he had never seen a relationship like he had between these two guys, and it helped pattern the way he visualized his life going forward. Uh, so he gives them a lot of credit for that. Florida was segregated, and you know, when very segregated when Ellie came up and Grandpa used to go, Ellie wasn't allowed to ride the bus with the Yankees or go to the restaurants and Grandpa Yogi would go eat at the black restaurants so Ellie wouldn't have to eat by himself. Just as the Dobies welcomed Dale into their Montclair household, the Barras invited the community into their home, especially around the holidays. In fact, the Yogiism, when you get to a fork in the road, take it, turned out to be directions to his house on a circular drive in the New Jersey suburb. The things I remember the most with the holidays, so he made typical Italian meatballs with the um, pork, beef, and veal like mix, and he would have a couple of us kids over like the, a day or two before Christmas, and we would roll like 300 mini meatballs, like the size of a golf ball, and my grandmother would make them in this big, huge, like the kind of pot you boil like clams in, whatever, and we'd all eat them with um, toothpicks. We all used to decorate the Christmas tree. But my grandparents had like a pretty open door policy on the holidays. At Thanksgiving, my grandmother would put a tray of champagne in their front hall, hall prop the front door open, and she used to hire a horse and buggy to take kids up and down the street, and anybody in town who wanted to come over could get on the buggy and walk into her house and have a glass of champagne. They were just very a part of the community and very just out and out town and, and, and not like pretentious in, in any way. They always wanted to talk to people. As the eldest of 11 grandchildren, Lindsay says her grandparents supported the family in everything they did, and it was her mother who encouraged Lindsay's pursuit of a journalism career. And he just encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do. He didn't, my dad and my uncles would talk about it, he didn't push them into baseball, they played all the sports, he encouraged us to play all the sports that would make us a better athlete. Um, you know, he, he uh, I kind of, I feel like I, I just, I became a sports writer with really like my mom's idea. I was good at, in English and I didn't have a better idea and I liked sports, so I went to journalism school. I'm like, okay. Um, but uh, he was just super supportive with it. He, my grandmother used to put post-it notes in ESPN the magazine where all my stories were and grandpa would read all of them and he always was up on where I was. Um, 
And he, uh, for a long time, when I, after I started at ESPN, I did not cover baseball. I didn't want people to think that I got my job only because I was a Vera. And just the talking with all the editors at work and whatnot, one day my editor-in-chief said, I mean, growing up with Yogi Berra, it's pretty apparent, you've forgotten more about baseball than most of my other reporters were ever, no, you're going to cover baseball. And I was like, no, no. But uh, he was excited, and we would talk about it a lot, and he gave me many, many story ideas over the years, so it was great. While Yogi supported Lindsay's chosen profession, he didn't make it easy on her to talk about his career. Lindsay describes how she had to ask questions of her grandfather, and Peter shares a funny anecdote in which Dale describes his reaction to a baseball situation and his father's response. He did not talk about himself. If you wanted to, like, if you had to ask him an incredibly pointed question, like, tell me about, I don't know, Al Kaline's third at bat in April of 1958, to get him to say something about what he did, he would tell you about, if you asked him about a World Series, he would tell you about a home run that Mickey hit or a game that Whitey pitched. He would talk about team accomplishments, but it was impossible to get him to talk about anything that, that he did. You could sometimes ask him, like, hey, Grandpa, you didn't make it about you, though. Like, hey, I got up the other day with first and third and two strikes. Like, what should I have been doing, right? What should I, and then he, could, he might tell you what he used to think about or whatever, but you couldn't ask him. He had to make it about you. Yeah. yeah. Can I tell, I tell a Dale story about this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Dale Barrett told me this. Uh, he never talked baseball with his father. And then at one point, we are having a conversation, and, you know, he, he, they were talking about a situation where it's bases loaded, one out. And what are you thinking? So Dale says, I'm thinking, okay, go on, strike out, go on, they're going to ball, or make contact, want to get in the air, that's all that's going through my mind. He said, Yui, what are you thinking? And Yui said, pitcher's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing in a lighter vein, one of Lindsay's female forebearers in the 1950s asked her grandfather a question, which led to one of Lindsay's favorite yogiisms. My favorite little-known yogiism in the late 50s when he starts to become the pitch man for Yuhu, they had a press conference with him and Mickey Mantle to introduce them, and there was a female reporter in the front row, and when I became a female reporter myself, he told me this story. It was memorable because there weren't a lot of female reporters in the 50s. And she raised her hand and she said, excuse me, is that hyphenated? Asking about Yuhu, and he said, lady, it ain't even carbonated. <laughs> Jim Cott played with Yogi, and Yuhu figured into one of their interactions. Cott recalls Berra's clubhouse presence, comparing Yogi to the king of golf. One humorous thing with the Yuhu, you know, he gave us all a t-shirt. So, we got a Yuhu t-shirt. So, I think I, I, I might have been going right into the laboratory there, and I said, Yo, uh, Nick put my t-shirt in the dryer and it shrunk. You got another one? Nope, one per player. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as Joe Girardi and the guys in the, in the film said, it was, when he walked in, uh, gosh, it was such a great moment because he made everybody feel like, kind of like Arnold Palmer in golf. He made you feel like you were his dear friend, even though you just knew him from a distance. Cott congratulates the production team on the film and recalls Whitey Ford's stories about Yogi as a pitch caller. Then he shares one of Whitey's Yogi memories from a Yankees old-timers day. I first actually met Yogi where there were still two All-Star games in 1962, and we were teammates, and uh, I just sat in a corner admiring all these guys that were there. I heard it growing up in the Midwest, I heard all about Yogi and the Yogi-isms, but uh, first of all, before I even say anything about Yogi, I just think that you guys should be so proud 
and, and Lindsay for putting this together. I mean, it's just magnificent. Uh, Thank you, Steve. Because what it points out to me as a baseball person, Yogi didn't look. Today, uh, he'd be scouted out of the game. He wouldn't get a chance. And yet, he's one of the five greatest players of all time because, because they are missing is baseball IQ, hand-eye coordination, and that's what Yogi had. Whitey, for I got to know more about Yogi through Whitey, and Whitey said he never shook Yogi off. And one day, I don't know if you've ever, but Mickey called the pitches. Yeah, Mickey, Mickey said, I want to call the pitches. So Mickey called the pitches for Whitey. One day, Yogi put him down, uh, called the whole game. Whitey just never shook him off. And then another uh, quick Yogiism that Whitey said is at the uh, old-timers day when they were announcing the players in, in the pecking order of how important they were, and they were scrolling down the Yankee family that had passed away the year before. And Yogi looked at Whitey and said, Whitey, Hope I'm never standing here and see my name up there. <laughs> but you know, I heard all about him. Uh, pitching, pitching to him was just uh, kind of in, in those days for me it was intimidating uh, facing Yogi or Mickey Mantle because I thought about him on my trading card. And uh, if Dale were here, Dale would have a proud uh, time moment because Dale actually hit me better than your dad. <laughs> I think uh, Josh. Found out Yogi went two for six with a walk and a strikeout, which would be a typical line, and, and Dale hit much better. But uh, I just think uh, I admired so much to see what I had read about Yogi or seen about him in papers as a kid, and just to find out what a great uh, what a great ball player he was. And I think it's as a baseball player, uh, it, it kind of makes me feel good that you you don't have to be. Uh, an athlete carved out of marble to play baseball. You have to have baseball IQ and skills, and that's what Yogi had. And uh, I think when you read, when you saw the comments from his teammates, you, you understood that they really respected uh, what a great baseball player he was, what a great teammate. Lindsay and Cott discuss how Yogi's physique and form made him a great catcher and hitter. Jim said you don't have to be carved out of marble to play uh, baseball, but Grandpa had these calves that even when he was almost 90 looked like bowling balls. He had this like thick barrel chest, big biceps, like he was a thick squat, like just muscular dude. And I always like to point out he used a 34 inch, 35 or 36 ounce bat at 5 foot 8 and 192 pounds. And most guys are swinging like a 33-inch, 31-ounce bat nowadays. And he was able to just manhandle that thing through the strike zone and not the strike zone and do whatever the heck he wanted with it. So he was pretty strong. Yeah, Larry, just when you talk about that in Nevada, just, it reminds me of today, if you follow games, you see a lot about launch angle. Uh, if you watch the movie closely, uh, Yogi uh, carried his bat flat on his shoulder. Most left-handers carry the bat vertically and they're low ball hitters. Mm -hmm. But see Yogi with that flat bat, if you said something to him today about launch angle, he'd have some story to tell about it, I'm sure. But he, he had that level swing that everybody was taught to have and to make contact and hit it to all fields, and yet he didn't care or know what the launch angle was, I'm sure, but he sure hit enough home runs with it. <laughs>
Lindsay explains the juxtaposition in her mind of the public and private sides of her grandfather. As a kid, I just thought that I knew that my grandpa Yogi had a job and that his job was as a coach of the Yankees, but I didn't know that that job was any different than my friend's grandpas who were accountants or school bus drivers or restaurant owners or whatever it was that they did. Um, and by the time I was old enough, like 10, 11, 12, to understand that there was something special about him and he'd done these really cool things, he'd already been Grandpa Yogi for so long that even now, as a 45-year-old person who certainly knows better, Grandpa Yogi is the guy that I grew up playing wiffle ball in the yard with and making meatballs with at the holidays and he burned all our hot dogs at our family barbecues. Um, and Yogi Berra is the guy with the 10 World Series rings and the, the um, 18 All-Star appearances. And, you know, Grandpa Yogi lives on this side of my brain and Yogi Berra is over here. And it's kind of compartmentalized. What would Grandpa Yogi think of the film? Lindsay brings it back to the humble man from St. Louis who lived the American dream and didn't consider himself to be special or different than anyone else. I think he told me to stop talking about him. <laughs> um, I think I, the same thing I felt when we got the, this postage stamp in, in 2021. I think he would be totally blown away that an immigrant kid from the Hill in St. Louis was on a U.S. postage stamp. And if he knew that this movie was playing in 800 theaters in the country, like I think it would just totally blow his mind because, again, this is a guy who would like just walk around on the concourse at Yankee Stadium because it didn't occur to him that he was famous enough that that would be difficult, right? He was just nuts. Like, he just, he really, I mean, he knew it, he wasn't dumb, but he just didn't look at himself like that and couldn't wrap his brain around why other people did, like, right to the end. So I think it would blow his mind, but I think he would like it. If It Ain't Over were nominated for Academy Awards, Lindsay Barra would nab a Best Lead Actress nod while Hall of Famer Joe Torre would earn Best Supporting Actor honors. The former MVP and Yankees manager sums up the film with a yogiism of his own. Torre says of Yogi Berra, He may be overlooked, but he's not overlooked by the people who know what they're looking at. Thank you to the producers, Markizen, and the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum for hosting the screening and Q&A. For more information on the film, check out sonyclassics.com slash film slash it ain't over, all one word. Lindsay Berra also co-hosts Hall of Fame Connections in the museum, and you can view a playlist on the Hall's YouTube channel, including Extra Innings Episode 2, From a Yogi to a King, which features the glove Berra used to catch Don Larson's perfect game in the 1956 World Series. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes and find us wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.